Well, today, in Sunday School, we are uh, continuing on with our study in apologetics. We have already talked about different, uh, different uh, modes or uh, methods, and uh, we have shown that your worldview will determine what method you want to use or you will be attracted to using. Uh, we showed that uh, from a Reformed worldview, we are going to uh, want the covenantal apologetic. Um, there might be other methods that come, maybe even a method in which someone combined two methods and uh, wrote a book about it. We'll see how that goes. All right. But for now, we're looking at covenantal apologetics. All right. Today, I promised you that we would talk about what this would look like uh, on a practical level. And I want to get uh, practical, not in the sense of, and we'll talk a little bit about how we talk to unbelievers uh, as far as people outside of yourself, but we also want to talk today about the unbeliever that lives inside you, that unbeliever. And so we're going to uh, try and get practical with... with uh, addressing that one. So, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you um, with open hands, hoping that your Holy Spirit would work on us, that we would learn something from your word, uh, something that your Spirit would apply to our hearts, and maybe uh, change the way we think about how we uh, address sin in our hearts, that we might be able to have better communion with you, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Well, there's a question at the top of your paper there. It says, what is the unbeliever's problem? Now, we have discussed this, I think, quite extensively. Um, remember, as a, an apologetic um, is not a worldview, right? Apologetic is not a worldview. A worldview is the criteria you use to interpret the world. An apologetic is the method you use to defend your faith. Okay? So one is a criteria for interpretation so you know what you're looking at in the world. And the other one, the apologetic, is a method that I use. My method will depend on my worldview. All right. Now, our worldview is that unbelievers have a major problem. Okay? What is that problem? Bob. Um, I, I don't get the obvious answer because I might even be right. <laughs> that is simply this. The problem is that they don't believe. Because Kermit screws them up, Bob them up in life. And this if you want a way to make one mistake, that's kind of the worst thing you can do. Okay, Bob says their major problem is that they don't believe. And that's 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 what that's true, right? That is their main problem. What causes them, what is the thing 
that is keeping them from believing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, it might have something to do with covenant, but uh, the, you don't have to use that word. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. Um, is it because the unbeliever simply just doesn't have the right information? Okay. Are they aware of the truth? Okay. All right. So we have some common notions, right? And the common notion that Romans 1, 18 through 20 tells us is that they all know not just of a God, but they know the God and his attributes. It's clearly seen. Okay, this is what scripture tells us. All right, we can't tap dance around that one. So what is the problem if they know? All right, very good. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's their main issue. They don't believe because they're suppressing the truth. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Bob is bringing up an excellent point. And if this this guy named Cornelius Van Til was alive today, he would be very excited about what you just said. So Bob said this. Bob said, there is this God that we serve, right? Or the unbeliever serves. Sometimes we serve it. That is us, right? That we have the answer, right? That we can trust ourselves, right? And isn't this the story, right? This was something... uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey wanted everyone to believe, and I think we any, any Disney movie is still trying to get you to believe that when it comes right down to it, the thing that limits you is that you're not believing in yourself, right? You got to believe in yourself. If you've just believed in yourself, you can do it, right? And that is, that is the message. Now, it sounds corny, but this is the catechism of the world, right? The catechism of the world gives you the simple answers that even a child can understand, so as you grow up, you begin to believe it, right? And you do what Romans 1 is saying the unbeliever did, where they exchange the truth for a lie, right? There's an exchanging going on, where they know the truth, but in order to suppress it and suppress it well, they have to exchange it for a different God, right? And it's usually the God of what they see. And we talked last week about how it is that we, um, what, is the, what does this method look like, right? We talked about these two steps. I want you to turn, we're going to talk, look a little closer at it today. We want you to turn to Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. 
Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. A method is given here about how to answer a fool. Now, uh, according to Proverbs and even the Psalms, who is the fool? Yes, the man who says there is no God. What makes him a fool? Not only is he saying something that isn't true, but he knows there's a God and says there's no God. Right? And all through Proverbs, the fool is rejecting God, rejecting instruction that leads him to God. He's the rejecter, or if we can put it this way, the suppressor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. So, yes, uh, Nathan's talking about how in Proverbs, over and over, it's talked about how this rejection of the wisdom of God. And, and we even find knowledge itself is not a neutral thing. Because what is the beginning, not just of wisdom, because Proverbs makes a, makes a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge has to do with what we think of it, you know, data, right? What's the beginning of knowledge, according to Proverbs? The fear of the Lord. So even the um, acquiring knowledge is an ethical activity. It is not neutral. It is not something that you can just uh, get in any kind of neutral way, right? So, Proverbs 26 says, how is it you are to answer a fool? How are you to answer the suppressor? Um, the NASB says, uh, says it this way. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Verse 5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he, will be, that he will not be wise in his own eyes. Okay. And that's pretty good. King James puts it this way. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, I think the reason why Nasby wanted to, turn, to turn, uh, change that a little is because it sounded confusing because it says, do not answer a fool, answer a fool. According to his folly. <laughs> and that sounds uh, confusing. I think what Nasby wanted to do was try and help you um, see the direction of why it's saying it this way. That's why deserves is in um, italics there. But if you look at the Hebrew, it's really saying, answer not a fool according to his folly, and then answer a fool according to his folly. Kind of uses both those, that's kind of the more literal sense. But what it's getting at here is there's a way of answering a fool according to his folly that leads to one result, and there's a way of answering a fool according to his folly that leads to a second result. Does that make sense? So... Answering a fool according to his folly, there's a way of doing that that would lead him 
to uh, uh, lead you to be just like him. Okay. Then there's a way to answer a fool according to his folly that would lead him to realize he can't be wise in his own conceit. Does that make sense? So if that's the case, then what does this look like? How is it that you would answer a fool in such a way that you would be just like him? Bob. Greatest is in well known or greatest is an actually good person? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and I think you're getting on to it. Okay. Now, uh, for those that were li- that are listening online, I probably can't go into explain to you everything that Bob just said. But the idea is this, and I think this is where Bob is getting at. The idea is that if you take the same grounding as someone else. In other words, let's say you're arguing with someone who is uh, pro-abortion, okay, and you're arguing with them, okay, and you start arguing over when someone becomes a person, 
And so you say, well, it's when the heart starts beating. Can't I just get them to that? Okay, well, when the heart starts beating, that's a person. Okay, or when the brain function gets, when the brain is formed, then that's a person. And so you can't have an abortion when there's a heartbeat, or you can't have a, an abortion when there's brain function, or, and you start arguing on those grounds. Okay? What you're doing is you're taking on their grounding. Their grounding is that someone becomes a person, but not at conception. Okay? So at conception, you're not a person yet. You've taken that on and said, yes, I agree with that. A person is not a person at conception but I will follow you to, uh, until we get to heartbeat. Then we need to start making a difference. That's taking on their own grounding, right? Now you're becoming like them, right? However, what Bob is talking about is what the next verse is saying, okay? So you don't want to argue by taking on their assumptions, right? So that's your first one. Do not answer a fool taking on his assumptions, or you will, just be, you will be just like him. You can't take on his assumptions. But, the next verse. When you answer a fool according to the assumptions, right? In other words, you, you say, okay, well, let me take what you believe and show you where it leads, okay? So you say that someone isn't a person until X, right? And so you say, well, maybe a person isn't a person. They might be human, right? This is the argument right now. They're human, but they're not a person yet. You don't become a person until, according to one uh, medical journal, uh, they don't become a person until they can value their own being. Okay? So once they're able to value their own being, they become a person. Well, you say, well, if you really believe that, here's the second verse. The second verse is saying, you show them where their folly goes. You do answer a fool and show them, according to their folly, where it leads so they're no longer wise in their own eyes. And you take that medical journal and you say, this medical journal says someone doesn't become a person until they can value their own being. Well, how would you assess that? Could it be that after birth, uh, the baby does not value his own being? He doesn't understand that yet. So it would take maybe to two or three years old before they start really understanding to value their own being. That if that they feel they're in danger, they want to protect their life, they now value their life, they're now a person. So maybe we can have abortion up until two or three years old. That's where your logic leads. And they discover that trying to separate human, humanity from personhood is folly. It is stupid. But they have to recognize that by you showing them where that leads. You're not taking on their assumptions and then arguing from them. You're saying, this is where your assumptions lead. They lead, they lead to this. It's folly. And what their goal is, not just to make them look silly, but you're trying to help them understand what they already know to be true. That this is not truth that they have stumbled upon, that this is more suppression against what they already know is true, that there is a God, and they are murdering people. And so, 
turning that idea from this is my comfort to really this is my suppression against the truth is the goal to a covenantal apologetic. Does that make sense? Now this is going to be important as we get to our audiences that we are trying to reach with this apologetic. So your second uh, blank there, answer a fool according to the assumptions uh, oops, that demonstrate his foolishness. A little typo there. I blame Anna. Today's your day. <laughs> All right. So the goal is to cause the unbeliever to recognize his unbelief as suppression. That they are suppressing the truth. They have not stumbled upon the truth. They have not stumbled upon something that gives them comfort. But no longer is this thing able to give them comfort because it is really suppression of what they know is true. Now this goes into, um, into the recognition of the complexity of humans. The other methods don't do that as much. The other methods have a more simplistic view that you don't have the knowledge, I give you the knowledge, you're surprised by the knowledge, you, you begin to believe. Or I give you the knowledge that you didn't have, now you're surprised by the knowledge that we're not so unreasonable, and now you'll look into it and God will lead you to salvation somehow. Okay, this is the very basic view of the other methods. This method takes into account the more complex situation humans are in where we are able to suppress what we know. Now this is important because this is why the other methods might make you feel smart in front of other people that are uh, academic, but it won't help you when you start doubting. Because when you start doubting, and you want to use a method that is designed to help someone who just doesn't have the right knowledge, you are trying to add something to what you already know is true. You are trying to believe that your doubt is innocent and simply needs more information. And you've led yourself into a false dichotomy. That is a logical term, meaning you have led yourself into two choices when there's other choices there. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, good, good question. So Nathan asked, once we have shown them that this unbelief, that this thing they were holding on to, this uh, principle they were holding on to, or system of belief they were holding on to for comfort is actually suppression, and we show that it leads to absurdity and madness, now what do we do with them? What's next? So if you look on your paper, it says the two movements. The first movement is from Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, where you show the logical end to the unbeliever's assumptions. 
And that's what we just talked about. And that leaves them without hope in the thing they were trying to find hope, right? The second move, then, is to show the biblical grounding of the believer's hope. You show them what they're suppressing. What is the truth? So you show them, well, what is a person, then? Remember, we're talking about, if we're discussing uh, life with a, with a pro-abortion person who has found comfort in murder through trying to separate hum- humanity from personhood, right? And this is from a medical journal. I had my students at USC Upstate read it, and they were appalled by it, including the ones that were quite pro-abortion. But what it does is it shows you the madness of where this leads. But then we want to show what's our grounding for hope, right? You understand, those of you that have studied science for any, any point in time, uh, the secular world has no answer for what life is. They know life is around, they know how it works, but they don't have a, an explanation as to why it is some, th- some um, organisms are animated. Where does that animation come from? They know energy, they know movement, but they don't know where this animation comes from. Does that make sense? We have the answer to that. Life comes from our God, who has never had a beginning. And we are able to turn to our nuclear weapon, right? We don't have to, we don't have to take on their grounding so that they understand because they don't believe the Bible. Does that make sense? This is the big argument. Well, they don't believe the Bible, so we have to, start, we have to do something else. We have to use something else to convince them. Um, so that then they'll, they will accept the Bible. Does that make sense? We seem to think there is a gateway between the unbeliever and the truth of Scripture, that we have to get them to that gateway. So, we, so you might have a guy like William Lane Craig give you um, a, false hope, uh, a false hope argument as to why we can trust the Bible. One of his false hope arguments is that, well... We have the witnesses that were really close to the event. Now, we are really far from the witnesses, right? So when it comes to when the Bible was written and who wrote it, we have the witnesses super close to the events that they're talking about. That's what makes it uh, legitimate and why you can trust it. Even though there's a long distance between the witnesses and us, that doesn't matter. Okay? And this is one of, his, one of his main arguments why we can trust the Bible because the witnesses who wrote the Bible are super close to the event. Now, if those witnesses were super far from the event, of course, logically, that would be a problem according to his argument. Right? Is the Bible reliable because the witnesses were close to the event? No. That's not why it's reliable. I mean, you guys all understand that we have news cycles that were super close to the event, and it didn't bother them at all to lie about it, right? <laughs> it wasn't an issue. Uh, I mean, you know, if people had that kind of an idea, you know, 
2,000 years from now, and they go, well, according to CNN, and they were very close to the event. <laughs> Long time ago, there was this news agency called CNN, and they were very close to the event. They even had reporters on the scene, so we can trust. Anyway, my point is this. <laughs> uh, witnesses close to the event still are capable of lying and making mistakes. What makes the Bible reliable is a supernatural thing called the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is theopneustos, right? It is God-breathed. And that God's breath is what makes it reliable. Those arguments are terrible. All it takes, I mean, if you want to bring an argument like the witnesses were close to the event and that's what makes it reliable, all you need is one professor to say, oh, you have never heard of redaction? Why, we have found that Moses didn't write any of that. It was these people way far away from the event, and they couldn't possibly know, and they're really writing for political reasons, and that's why you have what you have in the Bible, and you have so many contradictions, uh, because we have so much redaction, and people rewriting and rewriting. You have the priestly, you have the Deuteronomic, and, you, and they can just go down the list and just destroy any kind of faith you might have had in that little argument. Does that make sense? So, we show that after we show that where, they, where their view leads, we say, this is the truth. This is the part you have been denying. This is the, re- the part you have been rejecting. You have been rejecting that there is a God. You know who he is. And he is a source of all life. And when you stop a pregnancy... You are rejecting God himself, right? God's activity, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest things I've ever uh, been able to enjoy uh, was teaching an ethics course in which the book that I was forced to use uh, said there is, no, there is no verse in Scripture that ever said that abortion is wrong. So I got to say, hey, kids, is that true? No, I don't know. I'm like, hey, well, let's find out. So we get to spend two weeks in Scripture searching it out. It turns out Scripture has a lot to say about unborn babies and God's activity. And they get to hear it all from God's word himself because we were just asking if the textbook was accurate or not. It turns out it wasn't, by the way. So it took two weeks to find that out, and the kids got to uh, hear a lot of Scripture. And uh, I got to sit in the... Uh, chair's office quite a bit for that, but uh, all you have to do when you sit, if, if any of you ever find yourself in, the, in academia and a chair gets mad at you for using scripture in class, all you have to do is ask them to do work, and they won't, they won't do anything about it. So you say, oh, you're welcome to stop by and sit in one of my classes. Like, oh, well, well you know, just, you know, try and be careful. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> all right, now my secret's out. Okay. <laughs> you're welcome to... Welcome to blow an entire hour out of your day to sit in my classroom. Okay. They don't tend to want to do that. Okay. So, uh, personal unbelief. Let's turn to Ephesians 6. What I want to really deal with, and this is something that's going to come up in our discussion quite a bit, is yes, I hope that you have enough contact with the outside world that you are able to talk to unbelievers and that you're able to use this very simple method 
with the assumptions that we are bringing with it as Reformed believers. But uh, what I really want to prepare you for is the unbeliever that lives in your heart. Uh, because that's the one you're going to be fighting the most. Um, I know most uh, apologetic methods are designed for atheists, and they're just, <laughs> and I can tell you from someone who's spent quite a bit of time in the secular world and the philosophical world, there's not a lot of them. Uh, for one, if you're a serious atheist, you have to deal with a very problematic logical issue, and that is it's really illogical to be an atheist. Um, and I just mean logical. I'm not even talking about Christianity. I'm just saying you have to say, to be an atheist, you have to say, I know there is no God, um, which is crazy because in logic, if you say you know that something isn't there, you're, uh, it's really hard to prove that. Um, it's like saying, I know there are no blue rocks with green dots on them anywhere in the universe. Well, you would have to have knowledge of the entire universe to make that statement. To say, I know there is no God, you would have to have knowledge of everything to be able to make that statement. It really puts you in a bad spot. So you have to say, uh, the evidence suggests that there is no God, and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, but that's kind of the unbeliever that lives in us, isn't it? Um, we tend to be in love with the physical. Um, it's, one of, it's one of the issues uh, that I have with certain views of Scripture that wants to uh, physicalize everything, and they get upset at people that spiritualize things, um, as if the spiritual is not as real as the physical. And I think that is our big, uh, our big temptation, isn't it? Our big temptation is to believe the physical is more real than the spiritual. And when someone says something spiritual, we almost roll our eyes. When someone says, I will pray for you, they're like, oh, whatever. It'd be better if, I, if you said, I'll pray for you and slap a few 20s in my hand. <laughs> Which, I'm not saying you don't do that. I mean, you know, we want to bless people. I'm just saying that we tend to believe the, few, the money in our hand more than we appreciate the prayer. Does that make sense? Because what we really believe is that the doubt that we have is innocent, it is understandable, and it's just us having questions. Now, are there times where problems come up, where something seems contradictory, and we have questions? Absolutely. Is that different than doubt? Yes. So you run across 2 Samuel, where it says God incited David to number the people. Then you run across 1 Chronicles, and it said Satan incited David to number the people, talking about the same event, and you're like, what's that about? That's weird. That seems like a contradiction. I have questions. I would guess you would. By the way, if you want the answer to that, read Job chapter 1 and then you get it. My point is this. There's a difference between us running across questions 
and the battle that we have with our doubt. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, tells us that we need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, and that we need to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And then, therefore, it tells you to take what kind of armor you need to take up. The Christian life is guaranteed to be a war. That is what your blank is there. The Christian life is guaranteed to be a war. Because our battle is spiritual. Okay. Now, because our battle is spiritual, our constant temptation is to trust the... What do you think the next blank is there? Okay, close. Okay, so because the battle is spiritual, our constant temptation is to trust the physical. Okay? Trust the physical. That is our constant temptation. It would please us for something physical to look at to be our surety. To find some gopher wood on a mountain would probably do more for us than praying to the Lord and arming ourselves against the devil. But I also guarantee you there will be an explanation for that gopher wood that has nothing to do with the ark that someone will raise who has a lot of PhDs and write a very convincing paper. So unbelief, I want you to understand this. If we are at war, if this is the work of the devil working against us, if doubt is part of the war we are in. Unbelief is never truth, never innocent, never honest. I want you to understand that. Part of being able to fight is to know what your enemy is. Your enemy is going to want you to coddle your doubt, to justify your doubt, and to say, I've just stumbled across something that might be true. This is just me honestly asking questions. Is there anything wrong with honestly asking questions? Of course not, but you know the difference between honest questions and that thing that comes over you that is the doubt in which you are already at war. The best thing that your enemy can do is convince you that that doubt that is overwhelming your heart is an innocent thing and not war. That when doubt overcomes you and you, are, and you are longing for something physical to be your comfort 
as opposed to something spiritual from the Holy Spirit and God's Word. When God's Word and the Holy Spirit seem weak to you, but something physical or something logical seems strong to you, you are already suffering in the war. You have several darts that have not been deflected, that are in your body. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, at that point, you can either suppress the fact that you've already been stabbed several times and just say, it's merely a flesh wound, I'm fine. This is just honest thoughts. Maybe I've stumbled across something true. This is just me coming up with interesting ideas, and no one has, no one has been able to tell me what's right or wrong yet, and so I have a right to comfort my doubt. Unbelief is always rooted in pride and is the battle. If you protect your doubt and say it is not rooted in pride, this is just me making honest observations and honest, honest questions, right? And again, I have been a teacher for 22 years. I get it when people have questions. I get it when people like say, this doesn't make sense. I need this to make sense. And there's ways to make sense, and you find people that help you with that. I'm talking about the doubt that overwhelms your heart, where you are using those things that give you questions as ways to comfort your doubt. Do you understand what I am saying? The two moves become very important to you as a person when you are trying to preach to yourself. Where does this doubt lead? Who is it that you are imagining is an idiot that doesn't have the answers? What is it you are imagining is false, and where does that lead you? I will tell you, most people that have doubts don't think about those things. They don't do the work it takes to trace what they're doubting and why they're doubting it. They want to comfort their doubt. So 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles isn't really the problem. They're comforting their doubt. Even when you give them a very good explanation of that, it's still not enough because they comfort it long enough for it to remain a problem. Are you able to use scripture, prayer, and depend on the work of the Holy Spirit for your doubt, or do you long for the physical? Have we comforted our doubt long enough with seeming contradictions, without trying to seek out those that can help us without seeking out the Holy Spirit, without seeking out why it is we, we are trying to comfort this doubt and what it is that has led to it. That takes a lot of work. Those two steps become very important to the work we have to do in our hearts because what we think is that the doubt is innocent. And the doubt is you've already been stabbed a few times and you don't have your armor on. 
You haven't created habits in your life to keep the armor on. You live a life of a secular person, and then you wonder why you're filled with doubt. Right? We do nothing to prepare ourselves for war, and then we wonder why we're stabbed all day. Every time I talk to someone who's filled with doubt, they have lived like a secular person day to day. I'm not saying they're not living like a religious person. I'm saying, I mean, they do religious things. I'm saying they do religious things the way secular people do. They're not arming themselves. They don't think of themselves in battle every day. And so what do we expect, right? And this especially happens with teenagers who still think their parents are idiots, right? And that they have discovered the truth. They get it, right? Think of the pride it takes to look at someone who's in their 30s or 40s and think they don't know anything. I have reached the whole age of 15 and have gotten it, right? And you think doubt isn't rooted in pride? <laughs> All right, that was just for the older people in the room. For you younger people, I apologize if I offended you. I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> All right, we got to go. Um, uh, talk to me afterwards if you have questions. Uh, next week, um, we're going to talk about some specific issues that have made people stumble uh, in, their, in their doubt and how we can uh, deal with those things. Let's pray, and then um, I'll take all your questions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you for your goodness to us, for the fact that you are one we can depend upon, and that your Holy Spirit really is our comforter, and that your word is a powerful sword that can cut us down to our bone. Lord, we pray for your work in that, as, uh, as Andrew comes and preaches to us, Lord, let your word come through clearly and let it pierce our hearts, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.